In a world where mental health problems are used as common tropes in various forms of storytelling, therapist Ryan Engelstad and executive producer Mike Graham try to determine what lines up with real life and what is just exaggerated fantasy. Listen as we delve into the fantastical tales told about mental health in books, movies, and television. This is Pop Psych 101. Welcome back to Pop Psych 101. I am licensed therapist Ryan Engelstad, here as always with my co-host, executive producer, and angsty teen James Vanderbeek impersonator, Mike Graham. Oh, hey, oh, uh, you know, oh man, why would, uh, there's the girls and uh, I got broke up with, oh man, you know, dad's gonna kill me, my grades are bad, and I don't even know. What are we doing? Uh, I got to get a car and pay for insurance and get gas. Got to put the gas in the car, man. I think there's a All right, angsty teen. I need you to fast street. forward about 20 years. <laughs> okay, well, now my, my gut's getting bigger and yep. my accent's getting stronger. All right. Well, well okay. here we are as adults. And um, now we're back on the mental health show. Yes. Oh, thank God. Okay. <laughs> Hello, sir. Hi. What's going on? Well, I, I called you James Vanderbeek because this popular media source that we're talking about today reminded us both a little bit of angsty teenagers, whether it be ourselves or others. Absolutely, it did. It, yeah. Mm-hmm. Great book. Yes. So today we're talking about the popular John Green novel, Turtles All the Way Down. Soon to be a movie, I understand, at some point. Well, it's a John Green so, book, so of course it's going to be yeah, a movie. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So he's so good for him. Um, so we're going to get into all the, the plot stuff, but I think up front, we just want to let the listeners know that the format of the show is going to be a little bit different from usual. And that's because this book kind of hit close to home for both of us, Mike. Yeah, real close to home. This, the topics and like the theme of the main character of this book is, is like my central focus point of therapy. So yeah, hit right at home. And then you you told me it did for you too, so that that kind of surprised me. So it was like, yeah, we need to do a little bit longer on this one. Yeah, so we're not going to do our usual um, lighthearted second half thing, but you know, our our listeners can still look out for a, an extra deleted scene later in the week, in which we'll probably make fools of ourselves. But for today, we're going to kind of use the majority of the time of our episode to really go into some well, some serious stuff. This is a serious topic. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think the listeners are going to be relieved if uh, the numbers from deleted scenes say anything. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. That's that's some of our best work. <laughs> I mean, I love it. It's it's why I keep making this podcast so we can just do deleted scenes. Of course, just so we can goof <laughs> off for, for 20 minutes afterwards. Yeah, yeah. So on to that and let's get into it. Yeah, let's do it. A few select quotes from John Green's Turtles All the Way Down. Number one. People always talk like there's a bright line between imagination and memory. But there isn't, at least not for me. I remember what I've imagined, and I imagine what I remember. Number two. You don't get to be in anything else. In friendship, or in anger, or in hope. All you can be is in love. And I wanted to tell him that, even though I'd never been in love, I knew what it was like to be in a feeling. To be not just surrounded by it, 
but also permeated by it. Number three. Most adults are just hollowed out. You watch them try to fill themselves up with booze or money or God or fame or whatever they worship. It all rots them from the inside until nothing is left but the money or booze or God they thought would save them. Number four. Davis and I never talked much or even looked at each other, but it didn't matter because we were looking at the same sky together, which is maybe more intimate than eye contact anyway. Anybody can look at you. It's quite rare to find someone who sees the same world you see. Today we are covering the 2017 novel Turtles All the Way Down by John Green. 16-year-old Aza never intended to pursue the mystery of fugitive billionaire Russell Pickett, but there's a $100,000 reward at stake, and her best and most fearless friend Daisy is eager to investigate. So together, they navigate the short distance and broad divides that separate them from Russell Pickett's son, Davis. Aza is trying. She is trying to be a good daughter, a good friend, a good student, and maybe even a good detective, while also living within the ever-tightening spiral of her own thoughts. All right, Mike. So right off the bat, I, you know, I, this novel is written by John Green. John Green, a person who is open enough about the fact that he has um, obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, that that was sort of well publicized when this book came out. I have to be honest, as a therapist reading this book, that was not my immediate assessment or evaluation of what Aza was experiencing. And we're going to get into all the sort of nuts and bolts of that. But I had questions about that because I listen to books for anyone that doesn't. If you're new to the show, I don't read. (laughs) So I listen. But when I was listening, like I immediately was like, this has got to be OCD. But then after like reevaluating it, I was like, man, there's a lot of stuff missing. So I, I think there's misconceptions that could that could be talked about here. For sure. Because I think when people think or hear OCD, they have a very specific picture that comes to mind. And it's not necessarily uh, what Aza was dealing with. They they have a movie version of what OCD is in their head, you know, like yes. a media, a pop culture version. Yeah, the person washing their hands, the person closing the door, turning the oven off over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's a good thing uh, that uh, somebody with the talent of John Green is giving us a view into this world. A view that's slightly different, um, but also uh, refreshingly honest. I mean, this this movie is brutally honest in some of the symptoms that Ace is dealing with. It's hard to read. I, I did read. I did not listen, but <laughs> but it was it was hard to read for me for a lot of reasons that we'll get into. But yeah, you know, whether it's, you know, the support system that Aza has around her or the You know, I got to be honest, I don't know how much we're going to cover the actual like central plot of this book. (laughs) Uh, No, we got to talk about it. Okay. All right. Maybe we should start there then. Get (laughs) it out of the way. Let me do my setup here. Go ahead. Okay. So the book starts off. All right. So the book starts off and I believe it's in a, it's in a cafeteria and the book is narrated by Aza. She is stuck in her head and it's like very apparent straight out of the gate. It's kind of setting this character up as somebody who isn't just a narrator in the sense that you're hearing their thoughts, but like battling those thoughts while you're you're reading or listening. She has her friend Daisy, and they get along really great. But you do find out that um, she lost her dad when she when he was like eight years ago or something like that. And so he's gone and that's affected her life. You find out that she's in therapy, she's on medications. The one big thing that happens with her and Daisy is 
they hear on the radio that the local billionaire, <laughs> the local billionaire has gone missing. Every town's got one. Yeah. <laughs> you know the local billionaire, right? Yeah, of course. So they they decide, her and Daisy, that they're going to uh, investigate because there's a $100,000 reward for tips that lead to finding the local billionaire. As all teenage girls are wont to do, you know, they hear someone dying and they must go investigate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm immediately like, just as far as plot's concerned, I immediately was like, is this a Hardy Boys book? You were right. Like, because to, I'm going to be honest with you, I didn't know who John Green really was. I mean, I, obviously, I've pro like Fault in Our Stars. Mm -hmm. I think that's John Green, right? Yes. But I'm not a reader, so I, I didn't really have a lot of John Green experience. So I'm just like listening to this book and going, oh, okay, I, I see. Okay, we're doing a Hardy's Boys storyline. But but anyway, it is. I thought it was interesting. They have to go and meet. Uh, they end up meeting Russell Pickett's son, Davis. Davis is uh, very upset. Davis lost his mother. There's just a whole bunch of stuff happening and a lot of mystery going on. But the big thing happening throughout all of this is the fact that Aza is constantly stopping the storyline to go into these, I mean, almost chapter-long obsessive thinking about uh, bacteria in her stomach mm -hmm. and picking yep. at her, her sore on her, on her finger. So, uh, Ryan, what's going on with Aza? So, as and we sort of uh, alluded to it in the introduction of this story, but I have to be honest that the more I read almost uh, about John Green and the more I read about the book, as opposed to reading the book itself, the more I'm kind of aligned with the the diagnosis of obsessive compulsive disorder, and I'll, I'll go through why. You know, we'll we'll kind of hit the uh, what the diagnosis does look like and why Aza's symptoms do fit. And you should also go over why they originally didn't strike you that way too. Sure, because that that interested me. Sure. So um, I'll start there. Then so so initially, you know, I know Mike, you have some experiences with uh, misdiagnosis or differential diagnoses, but yeah, and this is a good example of that. Because for me, I'm a therapist. I diagnose my patients when they come into treatment. And, you know, just reading about Aza's experiences, um, reading what her internal dialogue sounded like, um, it definitely had the feel of an anxiety disorder, which OCD is one. But it also had this, what felt honestly to me like a self-harm component. You know, this sore that she had on the, I think it was the pad of her thumb. Yeah, yeah. So she picked, or no, she put it's on her finger. Her middle finger, she, she poked it with her thumb. Right. And she, yeah, and she pushes it with her thumbnail. Yeah. So she keeps Constantly sort of re changing reopening, the band aid. Yeah. She keeps reopening this wound. And to me, it had this feel of, honestly, of self harm because she, it, it felt in reading very much like she wanted to feel something, needed to feel something almost to distract herself from the intrusive thoughts that she was having. But reading more and more um, sort of about John Green's experience, it does feel more and more like OCD. So that's sort of an example of how a therapist and, and you know, I want to paint a picture here. You know, therapists typically have what's called like a working diagnosis. So I might have an initial diagnosis of a patient when we have our initial evaluation, but that can and in some cases should change over time. Is, is that why is that why therapists and even psychiatrists, if you ask them what they think is wrong with you, they, especially if it's very early in the relationship, they don't really feel 
seem to feel comfortable with just saying, I think you're this. Yes. Like it, it takes a lot longer for a psychiatrist or a therapist to be like, I, I am pretty positive this is what's going on with you. And that's because, you know, especially just doing an evaluation, you've been with a, I've, I've been with a patient for an hour. So even all the things that they could tell me in an hour, I'm still not going to get a full picture of the symptoms or what their experience is or what even after a week, what things are like for them. So, you know, weeks, months into treatment, we'll have a much clearer picture of what the diagnosis is. And probably that would be true if I were working with Aza. You know, my initial hour to hour experience with her felt like one thing. And then if I saw her in a couple weeks or a couple months after working with her as she had a therapist, I might have a different uh, experience of, you know, what her symptoms were telling me. Just to speak to the point where, as a person who's been, you know, therapized, it, it is very frustrating. Uh, sometimes you feel like you're bounced around between therapists and psychiatrists and things like this. And especially in the early when you when signs and symptoms are really starting to get bad and you're just like acknowledging that you need help and you start getting out there and you don't know what you're doing. A lot of times you wind up in these places, like for me, exam an example, I wind, I wound up in one of these like public places. Uh, it was an outpatient program, had to be there for quite a while. And it's like this public place, they help you with your insurance, but it, it's supposed to be like this entry point for people that don't know where else to go. And they set you up with a psychiatrist there and you meet them once and they diagnose you, right? Yep. So then you go on for the next couple of years thinking that this diagnosis is happening and you end up in therapy. And, you know, I, Ryan, I've told you personally before that I've, I was at one point diagnosed with dissociative identity disorder. Yep. And I've told you how angry I was when I realized that this is not, that's, this is not what's going on with me. You know, that is just not it, you know, and there's a lot of other reasons behind that, but yeah. So, so your experience is exactly why therapists are hesitant to talk diagnosis after an evaluation is because they both understand that I'm only getting part of the picture and that they also have, we have this very clear understanding that giving someone a label after an hour you know, for some people, it can be a relief like, oh, this is what I'm dealing with. OK, right. now I know what it is. And for some people, and I that's, get that that's, feeling that's very relieving. Um, but for just as many people, it's like, oh, I never thought of myself as X. And now you're telling me I'm X. So that completely sort of shatters my my self image or, you know, my prognosis for myself. So if I could give anyone advice on sort of this going into therapy or going into uh, an evaluation for a first time is, you know, focus less on what you want to call your experience and yes. focus more on the experience itself and being able to communicate what your symptoms are and what your day-to-day -day experiences are. That is what's going to help you kind of get this, the real treatment process started. Yeah. I mean, it's so easy to get wrapped up in your diagnosis and become that, but like, you're not your diagnosis. Right. But the important part is being there and talking through whatever it is. Like it doesn't even matter all that other stuff. So, but yeah. So how did you, so how did you transition from thinking intrusive thoughts and that kind of stuff to then seeing the OCD part? 
Yeah. So, well, so in either case, they are intrusive thoughts and it, it should be made clear that intrusive right. thoughts are a part of a lot of different um, mental health issues. Intrusive thoughts can happen in depression. Obviously, they can happen in anxiety. They can happen for people who have experienced trauma or PTSD. So intrusive thoughts on their own don't necessarily uh, point to OCD. But it was really, you know, when a lot of Aza's symptoms come from this very specific fear about bacteria and that that's where a lot of her sort of fixation and, and intrusive thoughts come from, that she really does have a fear of, of germs and of contamination from them. And that's a very classic sort of specific to OCD fear. Yeah. And hers was also like centered all the way down to a specific like disease getting her. Yes. Like no matter what, how she got dirty, the thought started one where one way, then it turned into the gut bacteria and always came down to this like final like disease that was going to kill her. Yes. And this, this, these intrusive thoughts and these fears affected her relationships, both with friends as well as, you know, she develops a relationship with Davis. You know, she, it's hard for her to have physical interactions with him, but then, you know, thinking about her self-harm behavior less as self-harm and more as a compulsion in response to the specific fear of bacteria that, okay, if I've reopened this wound and then clean it, I can sort of reassure myself that I am clean, that I am safe um, from this bacteria. So when you, when you link it directly to those obsessive thoughts, it feels more like a compulsive behavior that's responding to them. And that's very classic of OCD. So, yeah, you, you do see that a lot as far as in pop culture about OCD. And it always seems to be like Howie Mandel, if we want to talk about yes, him. Yes, From Little Monsters with Fred Savage, if you don't remember that one. <laughs> uh, but he, everyone, you know, he's like a, a big famous celebrity who's, who has OCD. Doesn't and shake he hands, has to wear all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So people's general knowledge about OCD starts with the clean, the clean thing. Is that, I mean, is that common? Uh, it is, um, you know, because... If you boil it down, and this is this is for me, it's it's from a point of safety. So the cleanness is like safety from illness for people who do things like uh, lock and unlock doors or check and recheck oven. It's like a safety from mistakes that I could make or a safety from others. You know, if you feel like someone's going to break in. So the compulsions are responding to that very specific impulsive or obsessive thought when that's the case. That's when we can start to kind of getting into the nitty gritty of, you know, treating specifically obsessive compulsive disorder versus treating someone who has uh, impulsive thoughts, but they're sort of more preoccupied with, let's say, things like uh, depressed mood or um, yeah. trauma. Yeah. So you're saying she has an OCD, which is acknowledged, you know, and John Green had it and everything. And you were also saying that intrusive thoughts are they go throughout all the anxiety disorders from, from what I saw, it was as if the, her brain was attacking itself. Mm. Like, so like he did such a beautiful job, like nailing the, the way this works because it's, it's like everything just stopped and then she was attacked by these thoughts. And I don't know if, if you, or if there's been studies done or if you know anything about this, but like, is there any sort of science to our brains acting that way? Because I can tell you firsthand, it's not even you thinking the stuff. It's like forced on you. So I didn't know if there was like anybody knows why that happens. 
why why OCD happens. Or why well, no, intrusive wait, like the intrusive, happen? yeah, yeah, like why they're why they're so extreme? Why do they come out of nowhere? So it's interesting. I don't. It, for me, it would be hard to say that they come out of nowhere. The other thing we know about Aza is that she has experienced some some difficult things in life. Her father died. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times... And she had to be there to see it. Yes. On the lawn, yeah. Yes. A lot of times these sort of anxiety disorders can come from trauma or traumatic events because, you know, you're sort of living your life. You have a very sort of uh, rational view of the world. And then something like this unexpected happens and it sort of shatters that. So now where you sit is... Anxiety, and, and, and again, this is sort of for me, this is how I describe it to my patients, anxiety and, and to a certain degree obsessive thoughts are all about the unknown. The more unknowns they are or the more unknowns right. we create for ourselves, the more anxiety is going to fill in those gaps. For someone like Aza who, start, who, you know, maybe before dad passing didn't feel like that was something that could happen when she was, what, how old? Um, something so like 16, 11, oh, 12. 16 minus 8. Uh, eight so she was eight um so when when you're that age and something that traumatic happens that does sort of shatter your worldview so now it's like oh if i could die any time well how how could i die so now now you sort of see risk where there might not have been before so in aza this takes the form of this specific fear of germs and in fact this specific germ so that's for me it's not that they come from nowhere although they can um you know like a lot of mental health issues, they can be genetic. If your parents were prone to anxiety or something like OCD, you have a, a certainly a higher likelihood of uh, developing the symptoms. It's important that we not paint this as something that can just happen randomly. Okay, yeah, like as far as the thoughts. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and because mm-hmm. I have intrusive thoughts. Right. And that's how they feel. They feel like they are random. They feel like they come from nowhere. And so I thought it was when you said, from your perspective, you would say that they always come from a place. Like I immediately went like, oh, yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) So it's right. So it's this it's this underlying fear. And a lot of times we think of it as like um, catastrophizing, which is just a fancy word for thinking the worst possible thing is going to happen. And a lot of times that's really what Aza's uh, intrusive thoughts look like. It's if I kiss Davis. I'm going to get this bacteria and then this is going to happen and then this is going to happen and then this is going to happen. Then I'm going to die. Right. Um, Because she says she's not scared to die, but that always seems to be the last part of it. Yeah. You know, for people who have these types of thoughts so consistently, they can kind of become numb to the, you know, worst case scenario, the end result, because they're thinking about it so frequently. But that doesn't mean that they're not going to do the compulsive behaviors that in their mind will still prevent that worst case scenario from happening. So even if she's, quote unquote, not afraid of death, it's not like she rubs dirt in her wound. Oh, yeah. okay. So OCD, like we see that she has the clean thing going on. And I'm talking really, really intense, obsessive thinking. I mean, destroying her. Like, I can't really if you don't read the book, there's really no way to describe how intense this was for Aza. But as far as OCD is concerned, like what are the other things that were missing that didn't make you see it right away? Sure. So with OCD, you know, there are, are, are some specific symptoms that we might look out for when we're trying to diagnose. So obviously we have the obsessive, uh, I'm sorry, the obsessions, which are repeated thoughts, urges, or mental images that naturally cause anxiety or depressed mood. Symptoms or common obsessions include fear of germs or contamination in the case with Aza, 
unwanted, forbidden, or inappropriate thoughts involving things like um, sex, uh, religious behavior, or spiritual things, um, or self-harm. Aggressive thoughts towards self or others. So, you know, worried, you know, I'm driving down the highway and I'm worried I'm just going to drive into traffic. And then this, there's a very common thing with um, obsessive thoughts, like things need to be in their place. So that's another thing, like like classic thing, like the napkin has to sit right here and the fork has to sit right there and the yeah. cup has to be right here. That that's another very common sort of like stereotypical thing that um, comes with OCD. So for me, like some of those things were the things that were not necessarily present. To me, it felt more like, let's say something like generalized anxiety disorder, because it seemed so ever present for Aza that that... Yes, she was focused a lot on, for example, the germs, but she also it felt like had a lot of anxious thoughts about, you know, her relationship with her friends, her Everything. Rela- relationship with, with Davis, her relationship, you know, how she was doing in school and her future that to me, it didn't feel just focused on the medical stuff, which, you know, as we're talking about it is where the sort of context of OCD comes from. She was also really worried about building her vocabulary. Yes, that was a, a theme. <laughs> <laughs> these people had, these kids spoke like PhD candidates. So I was, uh, I was pretty uh, impressed by that. Uh, one yeah. of the things that really struck me uh, pretty hard in this one was, as you were talking about earlier, the effect that it had on the people around Aza. Yes. Specifically the breakdown with Daisy, mm-hmm. was the one I wanted to talk about. So at one point in the book, Aza and Daisy get into an argument because Daisy writes Chewbacca fan fiction. Aza finally reads it after years, sees what Daisy really thinks about her. Well, discover that, just right. Aza discovers that she is a recurring character in Yes. Um, I'm sorry, Aza discovers that she's a recurring character in Daisy's fan fiction. Yeah. In the Chewbacca fan fiction. And that she's in, like an, a representation of herself, this like anxious, bumbling character. Right. And what happened when she read it was that it was not a good representation. It was that she was annoying Mm -hmm. and that she caused other people problems and that she only focused on herself and and all these other things about that in Aza's mind were surrounded around her problem, Mm -hmm. her obsessive thinking. So that that relationship blows up at that point. Yeah. So, I mean, I just wanted to say that that's one of the biggest worries you have is what other people are really thinking about you. And so I just kind of felt bad for Aza in that scene because it was like, you, because you don't really want to find out. Right. And that probably speaks to why she didn't want to read it, right? Is that this this sneaking suspicion that how your friends or family really feel about you? Are you a burden to them? Um, this is such a common theme for people who have symptoms that they feel like are so intense that no one else could handle them if they only knew sort of how bad things really were for them. So, so Daisy is probably the only person that really knows how intense Aza's experiences are. Maybe her mom. Yeah. But for, but even, even if, you know. Yeah. But for Aza to see that Daisy might see her this way is really devastating. And I think would be for anybody experiencing these symptoms, feeling like their closest confidant sort of um, can't handle them to the point of sort of making fun of them on in private. Yeah. And, and Daisy knew about... Aza's situation, her brain situation, <laughs> and her being rejected in that way for that same thing that, that Daisy already knew about was incredibly hurtful. And it's like, it's just a huge fear that you have 
Um, but luckily they get into a car accident. Luckily, yeah. Which solves everything in books and movies. Because, <laughs> you know, now life's on the line. Yep. Uh, just, just a quick bonk on the head and, and all perspective is, is returned. <laughs> yeah. But afterwards, I, I do want to say that Daisy couldn't have handled it better afterwards. Uh, and so I was really happy because if you have a friend like that, like hold on to them. She, once they both sort of realized they were in the wrong and, you know, Aza also had some things that she wasn't keeping up her end of the friendship. Uh, Daisy, you know, apologized, but then asked her questions. Mm-hmm. What's it like? Yeah. Can you tell me about it? How do you feel? Can I do anything? You know, she was asking these questions and I was like, I have a friend. And when we were younger and my stuff got real bad when I was like 19 and 20, that's when it, you know, just exploded on me and it felt like it came out of nowhere. Uh, lots of panic attacks all the time, that kind of stuff. Uh, he, you know, he was one of my closest friends then. And he always said, man, it's all in your head and all that kind of mm. stuff, you know? Yeah. Very putting it down. But, you know, he was young. As, as we've gotten older, uh, not even too long ago, like he called me on the phone and he asked me those questions. Mm. And however awkward it might be, it was to talk still. talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. It was like. Something awkward for him, you know, and he still did that because he wanted to make sure that I knew that he was that he was validating the fact that, you know, he believed me, which is a huge thing. Mm-hmm. So anyway, thank you, Daisy. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, and thank you to all the supporters of people um, who struggle with issues like Aza, right? That being able to just hold space for someone who's struggling with this stuff, probably mostly internally just to be able to, to be with them in that experience is really powerful because to be accepted, to be validated and to say, to have someone not say you're crazy or it's all in your head, but just to say, you know, oh, well, tell me about it. Just tell me what your experience is in and I'll still, still be here after you do. Yeah. It's, it means a lot more than you would know. I'm sure. I know. <laughs> yeah. 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 And then, and, and to sort of, in some ways, draw a contrast with that, with Aza's mom who is very well-intentioned and surely is struggling with her own grief and loss after the the passing of her husband and Aza's dad. You know, Aza's mom is like a lot of moms who just want their kid to be okay. Yeah, or better. Or better, or, or want them to be a better, right? But in doing that and in wanting that, they are are putting their need for their kid to be better on top of the experience that the kid is actually having. Right. And, and that clearly has an, an impact on Aza. Um, and there's one um, passage in particular that I found, you know, really sad because Aza really tries to advocate for herself to her mom and her mom just kind of brushes it off as like, well, I'm your mom and I'm going to worry about you. So you just got to deal with that. So at one point, um, Aza and her mom are talking And I'm just going to read this if you don't mind. So this is Aza's mom. She says, okay, I've got a couple errands to run. You need anything at the grocery store? Uh, I shook my head. Mom says, you feeling anxious? Um, So she obviously notices that Aza is maybe a a little off or a little, you know, uh, in her head. And Aza says, is there any way we can make a deal where I tell you when I have a mental health concern instead of you asking? And then Aza's mom says, it's impossible for me not to worry, baby. 
And then Asa responds, I know. But it's also impossible not to feel the weight of that worry like a boulder on my chest. And mom says, I'll try. And, you know, Asa says, thanks, mom. I love you. And I love you so, uh, too so much. So so it feels like Asa's mom hears her in that moment. But that's sort of a very typical thing for a parent where their need for their child to be better is, is an added weight, like Aza very beautifully describes it, where John Green very beautifully describes it, is that, that that worry doesn't make the pain and the intrusive thoughts go away. Right. Even worse in this situation, too, you have someone with a real mental illness, but who's also a teenager. Yes. And teenagers are already, like, their feelings are already overlooked yeah. enough as it is. Super self-conscious and insecure already, Yes. <laughs> So yeah, so it doesn't help to to feel like people are like constantly worrying about you or thinking that you can't take care of yourself at all just because you have, you know, the mental issues. Yep. Well, yeah. So if I if I could give a message to parents, it's take that deal that Aza is trying to offer. Try to trust your children that they will tell you when they're anxious or when they're depressed. And I know that's scary. The idea that they, you know, might not tell you. But that trust goes such a long way because if they feel safe with you in sharing those emotional experiences, then they will really come to you when it matters. And you they will be comfortable and trusting and let you help them in the way that you probably so desperately want to. But if, it, if it's a pressure thing and they know that you worry all the time, they're not going to want to show you that real emotional experience because they know that you worry and they know that that might only make it worse for both of you. I couldn't agree more. Okay, so real quick, Davis. She forms a relationship with Davis. That's the local billionaire's son. And, of course, in the mystery side of things, I definitely thought Davis was the culprit the whole time. Oh, you thought he killed his dad? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, great. like the whole time. <laughs> I, I thought the little brother who was, like, having his own issues with it might have done it as well. <laughs> Noah? No. I don't know. He was weirdly no. quiet. He was, he was a little suspicious little kid. You never know, man. He was crying and stuff. Hey, man, I don't know what to tell you. I was just sharing my that's, own. Ryan, that's last week's episode on sociopaths. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it was a mystery, and I was less engaged with the mystery aspect of this story, to be honest. Agreed. But but uh, she does form a relationship with Davis as it goes on. And however romantic that it seems, they kiss a couple of times. But like you said, she has a hard time with physical contact. And it, try as she might, she just can't force herself. She's also a little socially awkward as well. Like she, she could interact with Davis on the cell phone, yeah, texting. Yep. But in person, she talked less. Davis talked more, mm -hmm. which is what he liked about her, which is what I hated about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and and this is a a very common thing for kids these days, just in general, right? Where the probably primary mode of, of communication is digital. And for someone with any amount of social anxiety, they're going to seek that out because, oh, I can get a text and I can I don't have to respond immediately. I can just sort of take a step back and compose my thoughts and create this perfect message in response. Um, but what that, that ends up with is that how do you then interact in person when these thoughts are still with you? Yeah. So I, I was just going to say, as far as relationships, yeah, Dave, Davis and her, they have a relationship. She can't, she just like, she can't. Mm -hmm. So going forward in her life, because we know obsessive compulsive disorder 
I mean, from what I know about it, if it's like any other anxiety disorder, like with therapy can be treated, but this isn't something that is like curable. Like it doesn't just go away. Am I, am I right to say that? Uh, that's fair. Obsessive compulsive disorder, like other anxiety disorders can be treated with medication. I would say that the mental health community is a little split on, on this particular uh, medication approach because some anxiety medications can be addictive. Um, people don't want to rely on medication, you know, like the sort of classic case to, you know, be themselves, all these sorts of things. But right. in particular with something like OCD, where if someone is afraid that taking the medication is going to make them worry less, well, then if they worry less, are they not going to take the same precautions? And if they don't take the same precautions, that mean they're going to get sick. So you see how it can kind of just eat yeah, on itself. It, yeah. It, it almost, yeah. It's like a, it's like a, just a circle on itself. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But as far as her relationships, because she, she's already in this place where she can't do it and maybe is going to battle this as she grows. Is she it, like Aza particularly, is she ever going to be able to have a relationship? Because it didn't seem like it to me. Oh, I actually, I, I think so. I believe that she absolutely can. Part of the reason I believe that is because she's a teenager <laughs> and because she's going to grow up, she's going to learn coping skills. She's going to learn communication skills. She's going to, you know, presumably if she ends up in a committed relationship, she's going to learn how to um, identify, communicate and, and share with her partner what her experiences are. And presumably that partner would be able to support her in those experiences in a way that she's comfortable being supported. So I've, I've worked with people with generalized anxiety disorder, OCD. They're absolutely capable of being in a relationship. It might be a little bit different from someone who doesn't have an anxiety disorder, uh, what that relationship might look like, what the communication might look like, but absolutely possible. Okay, good. Because <laughs> I was worried about her there. You know, we, we do get to a point where uh, they solve the mystery and uh, it turns out that and poor Davis, he's lost yeah. his mother when he was young, but now he's lost his dad too. Yeah. Uh, and his dad left all the money, all the billions. So n there's no longer a local billionaire. There is now a local, uh, it's a lizard. What is it? Lizard. <laughs> I don't remember. It. <laughs> I can't remember weird, the name. It's a weird lizard. Oh, it's one What's of these the ancient lizards. What's the Someone's going to yell name? at us for this. Oh my God. You're going to be like, you guys didn't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, Tua. Uh, a what? Tua, uh, Tua is Davis Pickett's... A Tua? Uh, uh, Tuatara is the name of the animal, Tuatara. and they call it okay. Tua. Okay, Tuatara. It's not a lizard, so now... it's a Tuatara. <laughs> okay. So now the local billionaire is no longer the local billionaire, it's now the local billionaire Tuatana. What is... Tua what? Tuatara. Tuatara. Okay. Tuatara. So yes. now we have a, a billionaire lizard on our hands, and... And, you know, the, the book ends in a really eloquent way. What you do see is that Aza is still going round and round in her head. Like, this isn't a, hey, at the end of this book, Aza, you know, figured out a way and now she doesn't think obsessively anymore, you know. And, and I just thought that was the best way they could have ended it. Um, with intrusive thoughts, at least, you know, I, I definitely, you know, kind of wanted to to talk a little bit today because Aza has these intru intrusive thoughts and uh, intrusive thoughts are like the main reason why I'm in therapy. Um, you know, I'm bipolar. 
and all you know all the other stuff and but that that is like the main thing that gets me yeah. um whether i'm manic or down or whatever is is intrusive thinking um it's usually really you know when i'm down it's really bad and the way it happens for aza is ju- it's just how it happens and it's like for me and i'm just acknowledging that how real this stuff is and i hope people just understand it like for me i'll just be out of nowhere like i said just boom hitting the head and i get obsessed with um the thought of me no longer being here uh but at at my own hand mhm uh and i can't get over it no matter how logical i can tell myself yeah i can say things aren't bad you know and i might not even be feeling depressed but i i can say to myself i would never do that right, right. yep and then I might even know that I wouldn't do that, but I can't stop thinking about it over and over and over. And it tears up everything around me. And so like, I, I just like firsthand, I know what this kind of thinking can do to a person and how badly it can. I mean, stress isn't even the word. It's just this, it's like a monster in your head. And, uh, I wish it weren't a thing. So, but I just wanted to acknowledge that, that this. Well, yeah. So I appreciate you sharing. I mean, yeah. Are you comfortable talking about sort of what, if any strategies? I mean, you sort of spoke to a little bit like how you identify yourself. Like I would never do that. So sort of like responding to the intrusive thoughts. Are there any other strategies that you would say you used when you experienced those thoughts? Well, when the intrusive thoughts happen, I mean, I talk about it in therapy that helps. Sure. But if I'm on my own, I mean, you know, I'm pretty, I'm not the greatest, like, using coping mechanisms, which I have, and I will. But with this one particularly, it's hard. It's just like, I can't, there's nothing I can cope to make it stop, you know? And so, what I'll do, though, is I'll push it off by years. Mm. I'll say, I'm thinking about doing this, and I know I'm not going to. But it'll be better if I think that I'm not going to do it when I'm 50. Oh, okay, that's interesting. So it's actually a, a pretty common um, one that uh, is discussed in addiction, actually, where when people have intrusive thoughts about like possibly using relapsing, a common theme you will hear uh, is give yourself permission to use, but tell yourself that you'll be able to use tomorrow or next week or next month or next year. Oh, wow. So basically giving um, part of your brain, you know, permission to consider that as a possibility, just not right now. And just just that little bit of room to allow the thought to exist, but not have to dominate your present experience can sometimes be enough room to allow the thought to resolve. That's really what we're talking about, ideally, in a, in a perfect situation right. where these intrusive thoughts can pass, where they can resolve not without taking becoming, action. yeah, where they where they are not obsessive, where they don't sort of dominate your your thoughts and feelings all day. Because in in reality, I want to point out to people that intrusive or invasive thoughts happen for everyone. Yeah. Now, when it starts to become problematic, is when it you know our our mood is impacted, our relations are impacted, you know, or compulsive behaviors or actions start to come in response to these impulsive thoughts. But we all have weird thoughts. And that's not to, I don't want to invalidate anyone who, um, even, even yourself who has these experiences, but I want to, I want to make clear that, that this experience is something that when put into context 
there absolutely are skills that people can use to cope with them. No, and I don't think, like, I don't take offense to you saying that at all, because that's what I want people to hear. Like, if for me, that, that makes me feel better, you know, like, intrusive thoughts, like, everyone has them. Yeah, and, and some studies have shown that a whopping 94% of the population experience unwanted thoughts that are intrusive and unpleasant on a near daily basis. Hmm. Have you? I have, absolutely. Um, okay. Uh, you know, and sometimes they're as small as, I don't think I'm very good at this, meaning being a therapist. And I have no evidence to suggest that. I don't, it's just like a intrusive, like, um, imposter thought. Like, oh man, if, if anybody found out how bad I am at this, like, I would never be allowed to do therapy again. And for the record, I typically don't think that I'm a bad therapist. You're the um, best therapist in the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. But that's an example of a, of a common intrusive thought that I experience, you know, more intense than that. Um, you know, after I became a dad and something about becoming a parent, you know, this really new experience where all of a sudden you you don't obviously don't wish or want any anything terrible to happen to your child. But all of a sudden you see this this small, vulnerable thing that you are in charge of not letting it uh, experience any harm or, or pain. And you start to be afraid constantly of something terrible happening. And for me, it was like uh, picturing uh, unintentionally or involuntarily terrible things happening to my child. And Ooh. that's that's tough, man. Um, it, you start to to become overprotective in response to nothing <laughs> like nothing bad has happened and your, your mind's creating these yes, enemies like that reasons don't exist. to worry right yeah so it's it's tough it is it, you know i used to for ben i used to get down on my hands and knees and listen to make sure he was breathing yeah so that's a very common one for babies yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's like what if my baby's not breathing like i have to go check on them immediately and the reality is if they're not making noise and it's nighttime they're probably sleeping and that's a good thing <laughs> yes please go to sleep yeah let them sleep <laughs> <laughs> so and and to to play off of that you know similar to what we were talking about with aza all it takes sometimes is one minor bad thing to happen like for example for me like my daughter getting sick or I'll never forget. She like tripped as all babies do and like bumped her face on a edge of something and got like a nasty little um little cut on her eyebrow. And now it's like, oh my God, I wasn't I, I didn't prevent that from happening. It's my fault. So now all of a sudden it's like I have mm. from time to time I have intrusive thoughts about like, oh man, you know, she's she's up there pretty high on that playground thing. I wonder what would happen if she just fell off. And it's like, well, oh, well no. why am I thinking about that? Like you're imagining the act of actually yes, something falling. bad, something terrible happening. Yes, picturing like, it, and yeah, like, absolutely. Like the normal level for, let's say, me, if I see sure. you know Ben up high somewhere, I think he might fall, but I mm -hmm. definitely don't picture the fall. Yeah, I picture it, and it's not it's not a pleasant picturing. And so what? And so I'll just offer my coping skill, which is that I have to identify that thought as out of place and as inappropriate and as unwanted that I can recognize that I did not intend to think that that thought doesn't belong in the context that I'm experiencing with my daughter. And for me that I would say typically allows it to resolve. Um, it's like, okay, that's weird. I don't know why I thought that way, 
Let me just, you know, let me go up there and chase her and we'll, I'll go play. I'll go re-engage and I'll, um, you know, take a, a, an active step, do something that helps me actively engage with her and, and in a sense, reassure myself that everything's fine. Everything's normal as that everything's as it should be. So for me, you know, that's sort of me re-engaging with the present moment. You could think of this as practicing mindfulness in some ways, because, you know, that intrusive thought is about what if something bad happens in the future, whether that future is five seconds from now or an hour from now or a couple of years from now and being able to come back to the present, like, oh, no, actually, my my daughter, like, does gymnastics and, and dance. Like, she's pretty well coordinated at this point and, yeah. has, <laughs> um, you know, uh, knows not to do something that's going to expose herself to harm. Like she knows enough to keep herself safe, I would say for the most part. So let's just be in this present moment and enjoy the fact that she's not scared of being up high. And that's a really cool, good thing. Absolutely. But Ryan, so we're getting short on time. So we do have to, we got to do our reviews. Uh, I think this has been an awesome conversation and, uh, but we have to, we have to rate it. So if you haven't listened to the show before, Ryan and I, Always rate what we're covering on the scale of one to five. Some things Ryan does one to five for accuracy of the portrayal. And I do one to five. Some things on how much I liked it. Ryan, what do you got? So I, I'm just going to be loyal to the book. I'm out of five turtles or, or giant universe turtles. Um, since we didn't talk about the actual uh, concept that the title of the book references. <laughs> yeah, of course not. <laughs> we're terrible at that part of it no nah, it's okay it's just a metaphor for the universe that's all so out of five turtles i gave this a five for a lot of reasons chief of them being john green in, in interviews acknowledges that this is his most personal story and that he connects a lot of his own ocd experience with aza's so it's a person in a lot of ways telling their own experience so who am i as a therapist to tell anyone that their experience is not accurately portrayed so thank you to John Green for a, a open and honest portrayal of what intrusive thoughts and, and OCD looks like. So he gives it a five. Now it's my turn. And I'm going to go ahead and do one out of five to Ataras. So I'm going to have to set this up here because I really don't want to walk out of my house and get like kidnapped and beaten somewhere and thrown in the woods. So How's I that have for to intrusive say, thought? <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> so this book, I'll start off by saying John Green can tell a story. Very easy listen if you're an audiobook person uh, because it just flowed. I enjoyed listening to it. Same as reading for the record. <laughs> and it goes, it flows really well. Uh, beautiful uh, lyrical words. Very, very good. Uh, you know, and I agree with Ryan on the portrayal that hit me the hardest in the whole book was the portrayal of Aza because I couldn't, you know, I, I relate <laughs> as always, but she's just, uh, I mean, that's the best way I've ever seen it explained. So this is like a book I would recommend to somebody that was like asking what it's like, what's it like to have really like obsessively intrusive thoughts that like impact your life? read this book. However, <laughs> uh, it's a three out of five for me as far as enjoyment of the story. But you know what? The book wasn't written for a 35-year-old guy. 
It was uh, not written it, for us, Mike. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was written for teenagers. And that's great. And I'm glad that they have this book. The mystery, there wasn't enough mystery, man. Like there wasn't, there's, there was like. Reclusive missing billionaire wasn't enough of a mystery for you? But there wasn't a lot of like clue solving and. <laughs> oh, I thought that, well, we, we, could, we could debate that. <laughs> we can debate going that. Into there wasn't, well, yeah, there yeah. wasn't enough clue solving. Okay, but, fair enough. Uh, I, I think the biggest thing though, that it got a three out of five for me was because they did the kids had vocabularies that were so humongous. And if you ever watched Dawson's Creek in the nineties, they always got panned for that. So I'm panning them for that too. So, all right, guys, we do have to get out of here for the day. And first we have to say thank you to Kevin McLeod for all the music that we use on the show. You can find him and his royalty free music at incompetech.com. And Ryan, thanks for talking with me every week. Thank you, sir. Okay, so Turtles All the Way Down by John Green was a very personal book for Mike and I, and there are a couple of important takeaways I want to emphasize as we finish today's episode. First of all, while intrusive thoughts are something almost everyone experiences at one time or another, if you experience intrusive thoughts in any way like Aza does, support, therapy, and even medication are things that need to be considered, especially if these thoughts cause you to harm yourself or think about harming yourself or anyone else. Like Aza benefits from her therapy and medication, it is vital to have supports you can rely on when it feels like you can't rely on your own thoughts and feelings. As we mentioned in the episode, if you're trying to support someone who experiences these symptoms, trust and validation are two important first steps. If your loved one is not crazy, and putting your worries on them like Aza's mother does at times is not going to ease their pain. Finally, just like you or anyone else shouldn't be defined by their diagnosis, we are also not defined by our thoughts. Working on accepting our intrusive thoughts and acknowledging that they have nothing to do with our reality is a great first step in coping with them effectively. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Thank you as always to my co-host and executive producer, Mike Graham. If you like the show, please check out our social media pages. We are everywhere at PopPsych101. We also love hearing from our listeners, so if you want to give feedback or suggest something for us to cover, you can email us at poppsych101 at gmail.com or join our Facebook group. Pop Psych 101 is now on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us share these discussions about mental health, please leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe wherever you listen. For Mike Graham, I'm Ryan Engelstad. Thanks for listening to Pop Psych 101.